0: Hi, this is Jordan Moorhead, and this is Austin Real Estate Investing. Today, we have David Lauber here with us, and he's going to tell us all about his experience investing in real estate. So real quick, David's current full-time career is mortgage and property investment. He's been investing in real estate for 17 years. He has over a hundred million in flip deals. He currently holds 35 million in retail buildings. He's from San Jose, California, and we'll talk all about how you can reach him and more about him. Hey, David, how are you? Hey, Jordan, how are you? Great to have you on here. I'm really excited to talk about your journey and what you're doing now.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I I appreciate the opportunity, and I've listened to your show, and I'm a big fan, so I appreciate you reaching out to have me on.
0: Thank you so much. So, David, real quick, could you just tell us about yourself, who you are, and what your role is in real estate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So my name's David Lover. As you mentioned, I'm originally from San Jose, California, and for those that don't know, that's Silicon Valley, which where most of the tech companies there. Essentially, I grew up there, and uh, I started a mortgage company there. Basically, started in the mortgage business when I was 19. Had my own company by the time I was 22, and with that company, now has multiple locations around. Uh, I got heavy into real estate investing in 2014. It began with flips. Um, buying and flipping houses. And then it slowly evolved through apartments, ground up condos, and eventually landed today in our primary strategy being acquiring retail centers and putting businesses in. Uh, I do also have a self storage under contract right now, which essentially is the same thing buying a commercial building and putting a business in. Uh, so for me today, I like real estate that's supported by business income. I love that. Um,
0: so you talked about ground up condos. Is that what, what we see a lot of in Austin, the AB condo, where you talk about multiple condo units?
1: Yeah, AB condos would be, we, we've done those. Um, at one point we owned, I had an Airbnb portfolio in Nashville. Uh, it was all, I would buy both the A and B side of, a, of one of those condos and then Airbnb out as separate units. Uh, so, you know, we've done some larger developments as well, more than the two units, but maybe not like a 300 unit master development. That would be outside of where we've been.
0: Awesome. Um, and you you're in Austin right now. Obviously, you're from San Jose. Where do you do most of your investing currently? Yeah, it's an
1: interesting question. I mean, at one point it was basically entirely around the San Francisco Bay Area, which San Jose is part of that. Uh, but as part of this retail strategy, um, what we did on the first retail center is we bought it and it was anchored by a good credit union, but it was very painful getting it filled up took maybe a year and a half. But by the time it was filled up, I realized compared to my apartments, it was my favorite investment because I didn't get any phone calls about it. Uh, So then moving forward, it was like, well, I like these retail centers, but I need the business set up. So what we did is we partnered with Crunch Fitness, uh, good operators of the business, and we bought San Diego, Fresno, San Antonio, and Dallas for Crunch. And so now we can buy buildings in any of those major cities and put a Crunch in. Um, Once... About a year and a half ago, I came out here to look at our building we had done in San Antonio and realized Austin was just such a cool place, and in my opinion, uh, was a better place to be during the shutdown, at least more open, for better or worse, it was, and so I ended up staying here.
0: That's crazy. I think you're one of many who just ended up in Austin right when COVID started, and they said, hey, I I don't want to be in San Francisco. Austin sounds cool. Let's go there, or LA is not too cool right now. Let's go to Austin. Um, you know, I really like what you're, you're doing with the retail centers and putting the crunch in it. Obviously crunch is a really interesting gym concept. So I know we've talked about this in the past, but just for our listeners, do you own and operate these crunches or are you partnering with somebody who's running the crunch and then you just own the building and maybe a piece of the crunch?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So essentially For a a business operator, especially a a gym, you know these things cost a million and a half and a two to 2 million to open. So normally what these operators would do would be go find a building that they want to lease a site in. They try and get some TI dollars from the landlord and whatever they don't get from the landlord, which most landlords are not giving them $2 million, they have to go raise the money. So they'll maybe sell a third of the gym or half the gym and raise that money. And then they now have an operating business. in this particular case with the real estate, when you buy the real estate without a tenant in it, it's pretty inexpensive because that's a rough asset class in that form. Uh, the cost to put them in, and then the market lease makes the building worth way more than what you've put into it. So it makes sense as the building owner to buy it, put a couple, put some dollars into it to get the operating business, get your value way up, and then now you have a business and a working cash-flowing real estate asset. But my my particular deal with the crunch operators is that we because they don't have to raise the money and they're essentially just getting the keys to an open gym we've agreed on some equity in the business that seems fair for them not having to go raise money and give it to other investors
0: that's awesome and for anybody listening that doesn't know ti is tenant improvement so when you're leasing a commercial space a lot of the times you know and it gets hard to get a lot of it but they will do some improvements to fit your needs for the space. I really like what you're doing. So you're saying, Hey, I'm buying something and how commercial real estate works is here's the income. Here's the cap rate. It's worth this much. You're saying it doesn't have anybody in it. We're buying it either vacant or with a a tenant that needs to go and we're remodeling it, putting a business in it, boosting the cash flow a lot. Then the building's worth a lot more. You can do whatever you want there. You can just Take it along or refinance and get some money out of
1: it. Yeah, I mean, it getting into some actual like financial mechanics on like real done deals. I mean, on average, we're buying them for about three million, costs about two to put crunch in. And on average, they're appraising around eight and a half million. I mean, so there's a lot of value being created in this process.
0: That's awesome. I think that's an overlooked, you know, I had not heard too much about this strategy before meeting you. So it's really interesting to hear about. And it's something you don't hear a lot about. But you found a great business to put in these buildings and I really like that. Um so it sounds like you're heavily invested in Texas. Why why did you choose to open up territories here in Texas rather than just stay in a California area?
1: I mean at the time I don't want to call it dumb luck, but it was a little bit dumb luck. It was Uh, for the numbers to make sense, the gyms can only afford so much. Mm -hmm. Like the, the gyms loosely can afford 45 grand a month in rent. So when I do the math and say, you buy it for 3 million, you build it for 2 million, you're into it 5 million. Your payment on 5 million is about 25 grand. And if your rent's 40, 45 grand, you're making good money on the real estate. So that felt like a deal that makes sense. But you can't buy that building for 3 million in say LA that same building, even raw with no tenant is maybe 7 million. Mm-hmm. So when you do the math on 7 million plus 2 million and your mortgage payments, 50 K, but the gym can only afford 40 K. It's like the deal doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. So San Antonio was just a market that you could buy a building cheap enough to where the numbers all came together. Yeah. Uh, Fresno, same thing. Uh, Dallas kind of, but it's a little more expensive in Dallas. So, uh, There were other markets, but San Antonio was the best market of what would make sense for those deals. Uh, Since then, I've done a lot of research on the market and gotten to know the community and know a bunch of other developers. And Now, looking at all the migration rates down to this part of the world and then thinking of all the tech that's come to Austin and what will spill off into the neighboring city of San Antonio, I I now more than ever, I'm like here buying self-storage land and Thinking of other ways I can get my hands on different buildings and land here, because I think the whole corridor from San Antonio through up to almost to Dallas, I think all that's really big opportunity.
0: Absolutely. San Antonio is absolutely overlooked a lot of the times. Austin, of course, super popular, awesome space to buy if you can find deals that make sense. So are you able to open in Austin or are you just Dallas and San Antonio?
1: No, another crunch operator owns the region of Austin. Okay. Now, if we found a great deal in Austin, could I reach out to him and say, hey, you want me to build this to suit for you and see if we can make a deal? Uh, that that discussion could happen, but it certainly hasn't at all.
0: Sure. Awesome. Um, David, it sounds like you've been in real estate for a long time. 19 is absolutely an early time to start. What initially attracted you to real estate and then real estate investing after that?
1: really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the fact that I even know what that is, but the, uh, <laughs> the actually I was home for, I went to one year of college. I was home for summer. There was an ad in the newspaper for a, a mortgage job and they were paying full-time minimum wage, which was $1,200 a month at the time. Uh, that was actually more money than I made had ever made in a month at the time. And that was if I made no sales. So I was like, yeah, I'll take the minimum wage, whatever, and I'll try this sales thing and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I sold 50 grand in mortgages that summer and so uh, in, in my commission. So I was like, at that point, I just kind of knew I had found my home.
0: Yeah. So college didn't make sense to go back to, or you did go back to college?
1: Did not go back. I, I it started out as a year off, and then it was like, you know, you start- making money and not having to eat top ramen, it's hard to go back to college.
0: Yeah. Uh, Similarly to myself, I I was in college and I started a business. I was making much more money than I was going to make with my particular degree once I got out of college. And I said, hey, this doesn't make any sense to keep wasting time going to random English classes. I'm going to jump this and and go into the business world. So I really like that. The newspaper is hilarious. So you found an ad in the newspaper, and that's where it started. How did you get started real estate investing?
1: It was dumb luck. So as a mortgage lender, your job is to go get mortgages. A a pretty normal strategy is to meet with real estate agents and do the loans for their customers. Uh, We embraced that strategy. So we were in-house at a lot of different real estate firms. I, I was pretty heavily in involved in the real estate community. Cause that was our client or at least a referral source. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of my realtors called me one day and was like, Hey, uh, I've got this fixer upper and it's, uh, it'd be really good for like a contractor type client. Do you have someone pre-approved who might want to buy it? And I'm like, Oh yeah, let me do it. And I sent it to one of my customers who kind of looked at it. He couldn't really come up with the money for it. But then I started looking at the numbers, this deal, we bought it for like a million dollars like did some carpet and paint and literally like six weeks later sold it for a million three. And, uh, and me and the realtor bought it, by the way, once my customer said, no, I I said, called him. I'm like, Hey, why don't you and me just buy this? And he's like, yeah, I'll do it. And so that, that a partnership was formed, uh, that partnership still exists today. We have one last asset in it. He has since sold off some of his real estate and he's retired and doing quite well. Uh, but, uh, so for the first four years, pretty much everything we did was me and him. And then once he decided to retire, then I created my own entity and it's been on its way.
0: So let's talk about that real quick. So you still flip houses like, to this day? I,
1: <laughs> the, my buy box is very small on flipping a house. Yeah, uh, I got spoiled. So in, in the Bay Area, the median home price is 1.5 million. Oh. Uh, my average acquisition there was 900 thousand. Our average re- rehab was uh, 150, and our average out price was 145. So we we're averaging like 330 of net profit per deal. Uh, so when I see these other flips where you know you go in and you make 20 grand and it's like the same risk and the same headaches, I, I just have a hard time saying yes to those deals yeah um so it, it's just but i got a call the other day about a house in san jose that felt like it would meet that buy box of you know buy it for a mil put a 150 in and it's worth one six so uh but then they ended up listing it and sold it for like one three five as it is. and i'm like yeah like we, you know they shouldn't have sold me that <laughs> you know, like that's the reality
0: yeah yeah no, it's it's hard when you can put anything on the market right now and it just gets a tremendous price you know i know. People in Texas like to think the Bay Area is struggling. Everybody I talk to in the Bay Area says the exact opposite. They say, it is still crazy here, prices are on the rise, inventory is extremely low, you can't even do anything. Um, I guess real quick for our listeners, because we're all focused on Austin, what's happening in the Bay Area right now?
1: Okay, yeah, Okay, you know, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because it was something I was thinking as you were talking. What's happening in Austin has been happening in the Bay area since 2014. So this is like, for me, this is just business as usual. So you'd, you'd see every, uh, from September through December, inventory would shrink Jan, Feb, March, you'd see basically two to three weeks worth of inventory. And as you hit into the summer months, inventory would increase. And by August, you, you'd you'd hit your peak of inventory and then it would slowly trickle down into the next year. And you'd see like from Feb through May, these insane multiple offers, and then they'd sl- start slowing down. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. I'm not even looking at the data in Austin. I can guarantee you it follows some loose version of that track. Yeah, uh, I just know, I just, cause I know this market and I know what it is and what happens and how to deal with it. So basically the Bay was always overinflated. There was more demand than inventory because of all the jobs there. Now the Fed has printed all this money and now more markets are like that. This is just a, a, a national situation where we have too much cash and not enough inventory and zeroing it into Austin. That's just what's happening here. It's it's actually, it's very possible to navigate and it will continue. And these will be just be seasonal trends that you'll have to learn to accept, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's exactly what's happening in Austin. You know, almost right as we hit May, inventory was up in May compared to April and compared to March, where inventory was under two weeks. Now we're right at two weeks. Um, it feels like things are getting a lot easier for buyers. Listings are sitting slightly longer. But compared to before, let's say February, March, Slightly longer is maybe they sit for a week compared to two or three days. And that's if the agents are doing their job correctly and letting offers accumulate and letting people see them. So it, it yeah, absolutely. I, I think that something like that may be happening in Austin and may continue to happen in Austin, just like this. And it's interesting. I think
1: if this podcast is in relation to real estate investing, mm-hmm. this market is actually it's pretty navigatable as an investor, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, number one, acquisition sources, brokers. So we would we would meet 20 new brokers a week uh, and and say, hey, listen, like you're not my exclusive agent, but we're flippers and we have money and we can do the deal. And we'll, if you find something off market, it's not going to MLS and you have someone that's sort of a hoarder or a beat up house or some weird situation where they want someone to come buy it cash, we'll be your person. And- we did a lot of prospecting and we knew a lot of agents and we would get, you know, we'd only do a couple of deals a month, but like, you know, on those margins that we discussed earlier, that works. And so it, it, you can always find inventory, even in a crazy hot market, there's always a situation where somebody's house is a wreck and they don't, they don't want their neighbors seeing the sign out. They don't want their neighbors peeking through. They just want someone to come by it. Um, and it also helps with seasonality. You know, if you're picking, if your projects are done by Jan, Feb, March, you're going to get this huge run up in prices and your ARV comps from Q4, you're going to get much better numbers. Just like you also know, if you finish September, October, you're going to miss the swing of like that craziness. So you have to underwrite maybe a 10% off of those peak market uh, comps. So I think once you understand it, it's not—it's—it's it's possible to operate and it can be done.
0: Yeah. It just feels so crazy when you're you're experiencing it for the first time And yeah, I could see how maybe this is the normality of the market here with all of these jobs moving in that does not seem to slow down at all.
1: Uh, Well, tell me about the data in November.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk. Don't worry. Uh, All right. So you've done a lot of deals, David. You've done a ton of flips. You've done some retail centers. You've so many mortgages. Could you give us some advice of how to avoid a bad deal, or just criteria you've seen in a bad deal, and, and something our listeners can stay away from?
1: Uh, yeah, I've screwed up a lot of deals, especially when we went into scale in the flip business because we were we start we got up to the point where we had forty million in projects going at a time, and I really didn't have the staff for it. Uh, so in that, we we made mistakes. So I would say. Uh, three very specific things I would watch out for that are pretty easy to regulate. Number one, don't confuse comps in Jan, Feb, March, April with what the pricing will be in September, October. Mm -hmm. I always, one time I did this exact thing. I bought a house in June off of the earlier comps. I finished the rehab in September and there was the 10% seasonal dip it was like a $2 million deal. So I, I was like, well, I had a 5% profit margin, which was hundred K and it was pretty easy rehab. So I was like, you know what? hundred K is hundred K. I'll just whip through this thing and do it. The 10% dip dropped at 200 K. So I found myself writing a hundred K check to finish that one. Uh, that didn't feel good. Uh, and then, uh, so just know your seasonality. Uh, number two is on new construction or long construction, like anything under six months, you know, private debt, a little more expensive debt is fine because you're moving the needle. But anytime I've done a 12 month project that inevitably turns into 18, basically we're talking ground up construction. Uh, if you take expensive debt, it'll get you lost money several times thinking like, Oh, it'll be fine. But when 12 months turns into 19 months, that debt adds up, especially on bigger projects. So uh, if we're ground up, I would use more medium financing, five, six, seven percent financing, not eight, nine, ten, eleven percent financing. Uh and then I think last is probably don't force it. I I my rule of thumb at this point when I underwrite a new deal is I'm like trying to find a reason not to buy it. I'm looking for a reason not to buy it. I want to screw it up. Like, I want to like poke a hole in it. I'm like, hey, there's seasonality. Do We underwrite the 10%. Hey, this is on an awkward corner here or a busy street, or this is whatever it is. You want to look for those things and find reasons not to buy it and consider it all in your underwriting. And if you get to the end of that and you're like, "I I have no reason not to buy this, then I'd buy it. But if you're like, well, it's great, but this one thing I'm a little nervous about, don't buy it that's how you don't lose money in real estate investing.
0: Yeah. I love it. There's always another deal. I think it's so easy to think, Hey, I've got to do this deal. It looks good. I like it, but here's this big blemish or I found out the rehab costs are going to be so much more. I do all buy and hold. So, you know, pretty consistently, I'll find out, Oh, they said it didn't need so much rehab and actually needs all the windows, the roof, all this other stuff redone. And now it's not a good deal, but, it's so easy to overlook that and say, well, you know, I'll make up for it in the long run with flips. Yeah. You have to be much more cautious in that stuff. So I'm not in that realm so much, but you know, you, you need to get rid of it. If you're paying 8% even or 7% even that's, that's a lot over a period of time.
1: Yeah. And you're, you're right. Cause even if it looks perfect and you can't find a reason not to buy it, you'll get punched in the face on something that you didn't expect. So like, You might as well start out a baseline of like, Hey, no issues. And then you'll find the real issues. Like if you start with a baseline of, Hey, it's pretty good, but there's probably two issues. Well, you probably have six issues. So like, you know, like just
0: know they're coming. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so great advice on how to avoid bad deals. And I know you guys have worked with a lot of newer investors on your mortgage side of business. What's something you Or do you tell your loan officers to tell newer investors when they're getting started? Hey, guys, this is Jordan Moorhead here. And I wanted to ask if you could do a huge favor for me. If you could go leave a review for this podcast wherever you're listening to it, that would really help me get this into the hands of other people that are interested in information about Austin real estate investing. And I'd be able to help more people. Thanks, guys. Obviously,
1: I've seen a lot of people do the house hacking thing, which is buy a house, slow down and then live in it for a year and then just keep kind of acquiring a house a year that way with not a huge amount down. I think that's, I really like that as a strategy for somebody who's maybe has a day job and is a newer investor and just trying to get your hands on some houses. I mean, and I know sometimes people with big goals are like, wow, it's not fast enough, but I don't know if you spent 20 years in Austin and just every year got a new house with 5% down, like I'll bet you 20 years from now, you're gonna look back and go, oof. I got twenty houses in Austin. I'm feeling pretty good. Like it, 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 investment and money is made over time, so I think patience is good. Uh, I, I also think from a debt perspective, um, uh, knowing 15 percent down on single families can be done as long as it's conforming loan amounts. That a lot of people don't seem to know that on investment property. So if someone's got a little more money and they're kind of being aggressive, that's that's something to think about. Um, let's see other things from debt perspective. I think planning planning with a good smart mortgage person is huge. Like before this, I just got off the phone with the guy. He's sitting on 7 million real estate. He has no cash, it's crazy. He's got like three and a half in equity. And he's deciding between buying another home or does he sell one and do we do refi scenarios? We spent an hour going through like literally 19 different possibilities of sell this, rent that, pull cash out here, buy this, do that, invest in these different asset classes and he's now got like a six to 12 month like runway of like here's the financing options of every possible outcome i could run into and now he gets to go look and kind of decide where he wants to land like if you want to be an investor the the walk in the bank loan officer who who doesn't own any property is not going to be able to like think through this stuff that thoroughly so and i'm not uh, touting my company. I'm, I can name three loan officers in town who are very sharp and, and invest themselves and can have these types of conversations. But it's uh, you, you want to be with somebody who's doing it with you and understands.
0: Yeah. I think there's so many options when it comes to the, the mortgage side of things. It's hard to know them all. So if you're not an investor and you don't pay attention to, you know, maybe you put less down here and you put 15% down on your next investment property and Here's how you maximize your your owner occupied loans. I've worked with a lot of loan officers that are really good at that. I've worked with a lot of loan officers that don't understand investing at all, and they make it really slow and clunky and hard to get done. And then they make your progress forward moving a lot harder to get done too. So, a hundred percent agree there. You have to find that great loan officer that understands investing, hopefully as an investor themselves, and understands how you can plan out. I love that you're talking about you planned out you know, the next six, to 12 months. Here's what you can do to buy the most property. Most loan officers won't do that. They say, hey, here's what you have to do to buy this next property. And they don't think anything past that. That's cool.
1: Yeah. And also taxes for self-employed borrowers. Yeah. Uh, I am as busy as accountants at Tax Tent doing mortgage planning. Because, mm-hmm. you know, people are always trying to get the most write-offs possible. But then in sometimes maybe too many write-offs, let's just be real about it. And the the reality is like that if you plan to buy a, two, a property or two properties that year refinance this or do that, that may not overwriting off may not be the best strategy. So I think it's a two-part discussion is number one, what's the tax implication? and number two, what does that return do to your debt picture? And so to be able to at tax time get a draft of your tax return sit with a smart mortgage professional, Think through. Hey, what are you doing in property this year? Well, here's what the tax return will allow, and and maybe con call with the CPAs and really ping pong and strategize. Uh, we'll set the year up in a really tremendous way, and I, I just think a lot of people overlook that.
0: Oh yeah, every year I'm doing that same thing with my mortgage guy and my accountant, saying, Hey, what do I need to to have to qualify for what I want to do this year? Then I go back to the account and say, oh, We can write off this much. Let's take out these things. Many years I've paid a lot more in taxes than I had to because I've got goals where I want to move forward. I want to buy property. So that's really good. Yeah. Love that. Um so you understand markets like where we are in Austin quite a bit right now. Let's say somebody's looking to buy a few, a few house hacks. I love that. I do a lot of that. That's where I am right now. I'm in a house hack done very well off house hacking and been doing it for a few years. What's your best advice for people looking to invest in a market like Austin? Obviously, find a good loan officer, work with them. What else should they do?
1: Well, I think the second part is having a good realtor or a broker. I mean, because uh, a good broker will know the kind of pocket neighborhoods and what's good and what's a decent price. Uh, I think that's huge. I, I think the other piece is uh, the... If you believe, it, if you think tech will stay in Austin, and I believe that it's some going to be some type of tech hub into the future, looking at the Apple campus and the Samsung campus and Tesla coming and, you know, all these different things that have happened. I do believe that. Now, you may not, but so then it's a different thesis, right? But if your thesis is long-term tech will live here,
0: mm-hmm.
1: then... It's really a dollar costing thing and you got to get over that over asking. You got to get over the fact that it seems crazy. It's actually not crazy. Having seen a more developed tech land, this is dirt cheap here. It should, everything should three X. So I'm not saying tomorrow and I'm not saying there won't be lulls or market changes. I'm saying if you buy it, good, good, clean debt, hold it long-term. You like that house hacking, buy a house that you and have 20 of them if you had done that in Silicon Valley 20 years ago, which is kind of what this is actually the last time the median home price in Silicon Valley was this low is like the 2001 crash. So exactly like 20 years ago. Right. Uh, if you had done that, then your net worth would be about 25 million, (laughs) like, you know, real numbers. Right. So it it just, I think it's a, yeah, yeah, I just wouldn't be scared of Austin. I I don't know how else to say that.
0: Yeah, no, I really like that. I, actually interviewed a guest yesterday and i don't know when this will come out but the last podcast i did was a guest who's been buying in austin over the last decade plus and they did that same thing they were house hacking they were buying a house at a time they bought one for 175 it's worth 625 now they bought one for 250 it's worth a million now um it's an easy way to build a really good net worth. But yeah, like you said, it takes a lot of time. It takes time and patience, but it's very predictable, easy to do. Love that. Um, David, we haven't talked anything about any books here yet. Do you have a favorite business or mindset book you like to recommend?
1: Like all-time favorite? Yeah, yeah Principles by Ray Dalio. Good book. Uh, it's twenty hours audio. I don't read; I listen. So, twenty hours—a long commitment on an audiobook. But uh, you're in the mind of this billionaire genius and his perception of reality and how people connect and how teams work and how to challenge truth. It's if you could assimilate even a quarter of that book, you're going to be operating at so much higher of a level. It's it's unbelievable.
0: Love it. I think. You get something different when you listen to books too compared to when you read them. I think you're, you're just going to miss stuff either way. And listening to books can really be a great way to to digest information.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Well, and also I I don't like to just sit there and read. I want to like be driving or be working out or whatever so that I'm not like losing time.
0: Me too. Yeah. No, I listen to books in the morning. I read at night. So I like that a lot. You can get a lot done in the gym while you're working out there for an hour. Great. Um, and it sounds like you've got a few different businesses going on right now related to real estate. What's the best way for people to get a hold of you and what's the best way for people to work with you?
1: Yeah, I, I'd say primarily in terms of uh meeting new people involved with real estate. Anyone doing real estate investing who just wants to like grab lunch or hang out? Like I'm I'm always open to that with no intentions. Um I do occasionally take outside investors if people are trying to look at our deals and be involved. So that's something that could be there. And then of course the lending company, we are open for business. I love new lending clients and I, and I pretty much mostly work with investors because I like thinking through strategies and really being the pl- planning that from a financial perspective and how to get the debt. It's a big part of it. Um, so, uh, you can reach me on my Instagram at Mr. Lover. that's L A W V Victor in Victor and that's the best way to reach me.
0: Awesome, that's easy. All right, David. Last question here, the most important question we asked today. What is your favorite restaurant in Austin?
1: A lot of great eating in Austin, and I I happen to not cook, so I eat out quite often. <laughs> uh, I'm going with Ten Ten. It's my go-to spot. It's great sushi. They use a lot of truffle on the menu. It's done by Nova Group, who also owns a uh, Devil May Care, the Well. Neptune. They're just class act, amazing organization and 1010 for sushi is my go-to.
0: I didn't know they own 1010. I will have to check that out. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, David, for coming on and spending some time with us here and our our listeners. Again, if you want to reach out to David, best way to reach him is Instagram at, Instagram at Mr. Lover. It's David Lover. It's really easy to find. I'm sure you can find him about anywhere, but Instagram is the best. Thank you so much, David. We will talk here soon.
1: See you. Thank you for having me on. It was great.
0: All right. Thank you.